Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. Hello, and thank you for joining us today and listening to the podcast. On today's episode, I have Dr. David Yablonski. He's a pretty regular guest on the show because he's the medical director at Victory Men's Health, and he is here seeing patients today. So he popped in to the studio for us to do a quick episode, and we thought a good episode would be to deep dive a little bit more into what our blood panel is and explain these reference ranges and kind of what range we're looking at to get somebody to be health optimized and understanding that just because you fall inside the reference range doesn't mean that your health is optimized. So trying to understand that a little better. And this is going to need to be a series that we probably continue on because we're probably only going to get through four or five of these panels today. And we'll continue to build upon that. And if you want us to cover one that we didn't today, just shoot me an email and we'll make sure to do it on the next episode. So with that being said, welcome to the show, Dr. Blonsky. Thanks, Amy. Good to be here again. Okay, so we're going to jump right in here, hitting some of these items on the lab panel that we run at Victory Men's Health. But first, I want to kind of start with setting the stage for what the reference range actually means on a lab test and how we kind of arrived at that range. So can you walk us through that? Yeah, it's a great question. Reference ranges, which are always printed on labs. So patients now, because of portals, or if you just ask for your labs from your, your provider, they're getting more used to seeing their own labs. So patients are looking at their own labs and they're seeing these reference ranges. So what is a reference range? Basically, every lab that sets up has to establish a reference range individually. And while if you look at all of the labs out there, say in the United States, the reference range will be relatively similar, each one will be just a little bit different because each lab has to pool together a certain amount of people that presumably are healthy to set what a healthy person's, say, blood count should be at or what a healthy person's glucose should be at, et cetera. And so that is a starting point. The caveat there is if you look around, you have to be careful who you're calling healthy. There's a lot of people that are not necessarily what I would consider healthy or maybe other people would say they're not really very optimal in their health. I mean, so sure, there are people out there that may not have a disease that they've been diagnosed with. Maybe they don't have diabetes. Maybe they don't have heart disease. Maybe they don't have some neurological disease. But if you're a five foot two woman and you weigh 350 pounds and you can't walk a block and you're 40 years old because you get so winded, do we want to define that as the normal reference range? That's somebody who's probably already in the spectrum of being sick and is on their way to getting something that is going to be overtly a disease. But it's the best we have right now, and hopefully your provider will be able to understand that and help you kind of weave through these gray areas. Yeah, so understanding that even if you fall in the normal reference range, that doesn't necessarily mean optimal. Exactly. And a lot of our patients are here to try to optimize their health. So we want to kind of walk through 
what normal is on these labs, but where they could really optimize. Exactly. Okay, so let's start with hemoglobin A1C, where according to our lab's reference range, and like you just said, they vary a little bit from lab to lab, but it's 4 to 5.7 is the reference range. Right, and that one, luckily, here's one of the exceptions, that number has been agreed upon across the stage through any lab. So physicians, the American Diabetes Association, endocrinologists, we all agree that 5.7 is going to be the cutoff and 5.7 or higher is going to be starting with pre-diabetes and once you get to 6.4, you're going to be called diabetic. And so that one is an important marker because and we check it at, at Victory and I try to check it as much as I can at my regular primary care office. A sideline here, insurance is a thorn in our side, right? I can't just check every lab I want to check at my regular clinic because insurance is going to say, what's the reason? And my reason could be, oh, because the patient wants to know if they're headed towards diabetes. They want to know if they're pre-diabetic. That's really important. Oh, no, 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 doctor. We're a sick care system. You can get that only if you know they already have a problem. It's frustrating, but usually we can get around that. And certainly at Victory, it, it comes in your standard lab panel. And A1C is an indicator of your average blood sugar over the preceding three months. It's very accurate. It plays into the binding of glucose on hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is that molecule in your red blood cell that carries oxygen to your cells and then carries back carbon dioxide to your lungs to get rid of. So it's very important. Now, you can get a false number on your A1C if you're severely anemic, since if your hemoglobin is extremely low, then it's going to throw off your hemoglobin A1C. So we always have the exceptions. But most people are going to get a sense of their average blood sugar. And we see this a lot. And you can have somebody who appears to be very healthy. They may not even be particularly overweight. And their A1C comes back 5'6", 5'7", 5'8". That should be paused at. This is an opportunity to intervene, to say, look, you may not be sick now, but this is a risk factor, a marker for much increased risk for developing diabetes down the road. Let's do something now about it. And this is right. when you think about optimization or, or preventative medicine at its finest, that means we don't have a disease, we're not sick yet, but we can do something about that. And so for patients, anytime you get your labs back and your A1C is marked as high, you make sure you talk to your healthcare provider about that because that's not okay. And there's very simple things you can do to get that down. Even if you're obese, let's say you're 100 pounds overweight and your doctor says, you got to lose weight. You could lose 10 pounds and it could drop you down into a better range. And the lower that number goes, the more ideal your metabolic state is, your ability to process glucose, your insulin output from your pancreas, and the balance between those two. So we love it when we see A1Cs 4.8 to, say, 5.2. That's a great place to be. The farther you get away from that diabetic number, the better. Okay, perfect. So I think that's good information because if the doctor used a lab that has a larger reference range and they're in that mid five range, five and a half range, they're marching up towards 5.76. Yeah. It needs to be cause for pause with the patient and they need to bring it up and yeah. start oh, to address it. And one of the things that, that one of the little traps is your A1C is a great indicator. Like I said, it's a, a three month running average of your glucose really. 
But in the moment you had that blood test, you may have also gotten a glucose, right? And that's just a, what is that right now? Right in the second when they took the blood test, that could come back stone cold normal, say 75. And you can look at that and your doctor can look at that and say, oh, don't worry about it. Your, your sugar is perfect right now. But what about the average over three months? That's the A1C. So even if your sugar is normal in that moment, but your A1C is becoming slightly elevated, that can be problematic. That's a, a gift to you to try to let you know that you may be on your way to metabolic syndrome and even diabetes. Perfect. Okay, let's move on to ASTALT, which is part of the metabolic panel liver function. And we were talking about this earlier, and I'm listening to Dr. Peter Atia's book, and he outlines this really well and has a great chapter on fatty liver disease and how it's just on the rise in America. So let's dive in. On our lab, ALT is a reference range of 7 to 52, and AST is a reference range from 8 to 48. Right. And again, that may be based on a population that's not really, if we're, you know, we're trying to optimize here and they're not optimized. And yet we're saying that's your sweet spot, be in there. But it's at least a starting point, right? I mean, in a traditional clinic, anytime your liver enzymes, specifically your AST and your ALT are elevated, if that lab flags it as high, you need to be having some discussion with your healthcare provider because that could indicate a problem. I'm not saying it's a serious problem. I'm not saying lose sleep over it. But again, it could be sort of a a shot across your bow to get you notice that maybe there's something going on that you can correct. And let's dive into that a little deeper. I said something going on. Well, what do I mean by that? First of all, if your AST and ALT are, are even slightly elevated, and again, going just with traditional normal range, starting with that just because it's simple, and everybody will be able to relate to this in their labs. If it's marked as high, there could be an issue there. And the most common cause of these elevations, at least in our country, is due to fatty liver. Now, I don't know if we're noticing it more and therefore diagnosing it more, or if it's on the rise, maybe both, because we know obesity has been on the rise, and certainly obesity is very much tied to accumulating fat on the liver and therefore fatty liver. Well, why is that bad? Why why do I care? Why do I care if my liver's fat? (laughs) Well, as it turns out, there's a percentage of people that will get fatty liver and that will continue to damage the liver and actually lead you down a direction that is no different than somebody with alcoholic cirrhosis. There are people that need liver transplants only because of fatty liver disease. So we have learned, especially recently, to start taking this much more seriously. This is a marker for future problems indeed. And the liver is an incredible organ. I mean, it's like the workhorse. I mean, everything's bypassing through this liver. And it's the only organ that you can cut in half and it can regenerate. It can regenerate, yeah. (laughs) And yet, once it's gone, you know, other than a liver transplant, if you don't need that, who wants that? You can't live without it. It's such an important organ. It produces so many different things and actually detoxifies so many other things that it really is miraculous. I don't know that any human could build their own liver in their garage. I think it's impossible. (laughs) So those numbers are really important there. So if your AST is up a little bit, say it's at 60 and your doctor's like, yeah, it's it's not, we'll we'll recheck it. It's not that high. Okay, rechecking, it's fine because maybe you tied one on the night before. Maybe you're a little dehydrated. Maybe you had just had unusual amount of physical stress. Never have a problem with hearing that somebody just wants to confirm and recheck that. 
but let's say it's sticking, okay? It's not just going away overnight. It really needs to be looked into. And there's many things that can cause very modestly, very mildly elevated liver enzymes. So fatty liver is extremely important and most common. Now, I'll give you a little hint and all the listeners out there. Typically, when somebody has a drinking problem and they have elevated liver enzymes due to alcohol, their AST is about two to one elevation over ALT. So their AST is going to be proportionally higher than their ALT, even if they're both up. And so we look at that pattern and that holds true almost every time in alcoholic related liver disease. Typically in all the other ones, it's going to be maybe they're rising at a similar rate or the ALT is proportionately a little bit higher than the AST. So let's talk about simple things. There are a lot of people out there that are in their 70s and 80s now that don't realize they have hepatitis C from a blood product that they may have had 40 years ago before they did certain types of checking before blood transfusion. So it's very common now that we'll check people for hepatitis C antibodies. Next item would be a disease that we screen for here at Victory Men's Health all the time called hemochromatosis. It's a a genetically inherited iron overload disease. It'll infiltrate your iron. You can't metabolize it properly. It infiltrates organs predominantly the liver, and that will start to cause your liver enzymes to go up. And that needs to be dealt with and treated because it can actually cause liver dysfunction and liver failure down the road. There's, depending on the the patient, HIV is a possibility, hepatitis B is a possibility, thyroid dysfunction. If your thyroid is way out of range, that can cause your liver enzymes to be elevated. Easy fix. And then, of course, I mentioned alcohol, and that still has to be thought about and, and discussed. And by the way, people can have liver disease for all these other reasons, and in addition, drink too much. Now they got the double yeah. whammy, right? So you can have more than one thing going on at the same yeah. time. The fatty liver, though, is the one that is, I would say, eight, nine times out of 10 when I'm working up patients for elevated liver enzymes, that ends up being the culprit. And you have to have imaging to verify that. Simple ultrasound will tell you if they have abnormal amount of fat on the liver. What's the solution? Well, the solution is to first recognize it, and it's getting missed all the time out there still. The next thing is typically it's diet. And Somebody who is overweight, and most of the people that have this are overweight, and let's not forget skinny fat, right? We've talked about that before. You get on the scale, and you're a six-foot-two man, and your body weight's uh, 190 pounds, and you're like, that's great. And then you get on our scale, and you say, yeah, but you're 30% body fat, and you have no muscle. So you're you're skinny fat, and you're still prone to, to metabolic derangements. So they can have fatty liver, too. So getting those folks some help with some fat loss, a diet, but fat loss, never muscle loss, can really reverse and really cure the process. The other thing is that you're now seeing at many of the larger institutions out there in terms of hospitals is something called a fibroscan. And it's a new ultrasound technique that has been welcomed by liver specialists at certainly all the major medical centers, but we even have it in some of the smaller hospitals I work through where we can now say, okay, you've got fatty liver. Let's find out if the fatty liver has started to actually cause you to have fibrosis of the liver and even cirrhosis of the liver. And the fibro scan is really useful. It looks at, let me put it like stiffness. I'm trying to keep it simple, stiffness. And it has validated measurements that 
are now into the mainstream academic medical circles where we can tell you if you're starting to show signs of actual liver disease where now we got to really be careful. Yeah. So there's new ways to measure it, monitor it, diagnose it. And the solution, like so many of the things we see is, is diet, diet, weight loss, <laughs> and then activity too. So before we move on, to iron. Since I mentioned Peter Atia, I was just going to read a little excerpt out of his book. He mentioned recent revised guidelines in men with an ALT above 33 and women with an ALT above 25 is paused to maybe be starting to look at liver function, which is significantly lower than these normal ranges that we just mentioned. So I just yeah. want to throw that out there because that's a line in his book. Yeah. And I think you'll probably over time, and we've already seen the reference range for liver enzymes, at least in my time as being a physician, has come down. I think to your point, Amy, that's going to continue to come down because we're probably seeing people that are in the so-called quote unquote normal range that if we did an ultrasound of the liver, actually they do have fatty liver. So it's something that we need to get more aggressive with in catching. So let's move on to iron. And we do iron, ferritin, iron percentage saturation as well. And where do you want to start? Do you want to start with iron? Yeah, I mean, iron is something that's often misunderstood from patients. And I'm embarrassed to say my colleagues as well. (laughs) So there's different ways to measure iron. The panel we have, and it's a very typical iron panel, if you will, It's going to come with, it's from the blood, it's going to come with iron, TIBC, ferritin, and iron percent saturation. And there's different calculations that are made off of these numbers to get you to this iron percent saturation. And one of the most confused points would be on total iron, serum iron. So I see a lot of practitioners that if that number is low, they automatically say, oh, well, you have, it's low, you have low iron in your blood. Well, that's not always true. Iron comes in different forms, like a lot of different elements. And depending on what form that iron's in, in terms of its chemical form and its oxidative form, it's going to mean something different. So the best marker for iron stores and and whether or not you have true iron deficiency, and this is agreed upon, you go ask any hematologist at any well-known medical center in the world, I guarantee you they're going to agree with me on this. Ooh, I just said it, man, that's <laughs> put my neck out there. But that's how confident I am that if you want to know what your iron status is, ferritin is your marker. Low ferritin, like under 20, is there's a very long word we use called pathognomonic, meaning it is the definition, medically speaking, of iron deficiency. And you can have that even if you're not anemic. So people get this confused. Well, If I have low iron, then am I anemic? Well, not necessarily, but you could be well on your way there. So there's many forms of anemia. And anemia, remember, is when your hemoglobin is low. Hemoglobin, again, is that molecule that's in the red blood cells that carries oxygen and carbon dioxide back and forth. So when you're anemic, there may be many different forms. Iron deficiency anemia is one of the forms. It's a common form, but it comes with great significance in the right person. A 50-year-old adult, be it male or female, who has iron deficiency and a little bit of anemia, could be just a little bit. When I was in medical school and residency, it was often said they have colon cancer until proven otherwise. And that probably still holds true. I'm not saying you have colon cancer if you have that scenario, but 
that means you may have gastrointestinal losses, and, and if you haven't had your colonoscopy and colon cancer screenings, then that is absolute indication to have that done. So take-home point again would be ferritin is the best way to look at your iron stores. Now, iron percent saturation is very, very useful because in women, if it's, say, 45 or higher or men, 50 or higher, and this is another one, Amy, that's not based on the reference range of the population in the locale. This is one that if you talk to a doctor in New York City, anywhere between there and Los Angeles, we're going to say about the same thing. 45 for a woman, 50 on up for a man is a flag as possibly being abnormal. Abnormal for what? Iron overload. That could be even though your ferritin's normal and your total iron is normal, you may still have something called iron overload disease, which is often a hereditary disease from your, you get it from your parents. And so it's called hereditary hemochromatosis. And that is not as rare as people think. And we've learned that here at Victory, right? Yeah, I was going to say, discuss that because this is commonly missed by other hormone specialists and we catch it a lot. We do. Why do we even run it here, right? Well, the reason we run it here is when a man comes in with low testosterone, we always have to ask ourselves, why? Is it the run of the mill? Guys gotten a little older. Things just don't work like they used to. Toxins out of the environment that we still have yet to find, but are probably there for sure. Or is it because they have a pituitary tumor? Well, maybe. Or is it because they have a disease called hemochromatosis, which can infiltrate the testicles and interrupt testosterone production? So we always, always screen for that in every new patient coming in with low, potentially low testosterone. And yes, we find it, I bet you we find four or five cases a year. That's a lot, actually. And so that needs to be caught because if you don't catch it, over time, that iron will continue to just very insidiously weave its way and deposit itself into organs like your heart muscle, like your liver, like your testicles. Not good, right? Right. Bad things can happen from this. You can get joint problems from it. People may not feel well because of it. And if we catch it, then we can refer them off to specialists that deal with it. And it's oddly enough that the treatment for it, it makes it sound like we're back to like 1820. Like you bleed people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How do you get iron out of a person? You bleed them. Because it's, yep. it's in the blood and you, you get the iron down. But there's a, a way to do that that's safe and doesn't make you feel horrible uh, by any means. So that is something that's very important, often overlooked, often underappreciated. Oh, and by the way, if you want to then definitively test for hemochromatosis, uh, it's, a, it's another blood test that's just a genetic test. And usually that will give us the answer. There may be some people, well, at least in the old days, and the old days could be five years ago, a liver biopsy was sort of the gold standard. But most people do not need that. We can do it just on blood tests now. So I think we have time for one more. And all these thus far have been pertained to male and female. This is male-specific, and it's PSA. Yeah, something that just gets talked about so much and yet so much misinformation. It's something that we check frequently here at Victory because, we A, we're dealing with men here. That's Victory Men's Health. That's what it's called. And when it comes to, there's a sort of a medical legal realm that we have to operate in. So we check PSA way more than we probably clinically need to, but we do it because there's so much controversy that we always like to stay on the absolute safest place when it comes to medical legal issues. And so we we monitor PSA closely in men who are on testosterone. 
But let's just talk about PSA by itself. So PSA is still really the only blood test out there that will at least give you a screen for prostate cancer in a man. And of course it's in a man because women don't have prostates. Right. Not everybody knows that. So let's just get that out there. <laughs> women, you do not have prostates. Okay. I've had women come and go, could it be my prostate? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> I won't go down the rabbit hole of, well, what's a woman? What's a woman? <laughs> You're okay? down the rabbit hole. All right. Am I already there? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, all right. I'm, I'm going to be old school. <laughs> so men, you have prostates. All right. And the prostate is an important gland. It actually produces the semen that's in the ejaculate. Okay. So prostate-specific antigen or PSA is a nice screener for possible prostate cancer. I can tell you that I have found it extremely useful in catching many, many, many cases of prostate cancer. It used to come with quite a bit of controversy because you can get one back that's high, but it's not because you have cancer. And then you had all these men getting unnecessary prostate biopsies. However, we are now in the in a great age where we have additional tests. So if you do come back a little high, we can risk stratify you with other blood and urine tests. The blood test we use is something called a 4K test. It's used at the Mayo Clinic. It's used at Washington University. It's used all over the place. It's very useful. There are specialized prostate MRIs now that are used. So we're not getting men that just because your PSA is up a little bit that are just going right to biopsy anymore because who wants that if they don't need right. it? But here's the trap with PSA. First of all, what does high mean? Well, high has to do with your, it should be defined based on your age. Give the reference range because I'm not looking at it. Yeah. So every lab that comes out is going to have a reference range that says zero to four. Got it. All right, great. So I am 40 years old and my PSA is 3.9. And we repeated it because it can be elevated because of prostatitis or unspeakable sort of sexual acts that I cannot get into in this podcast, <laughs> motorcycle riding, extensive bike riding, things like that. Okay. But we rechecked it again and took all that into consideration. And it's, you're 40 years old, still 3.9. Okay. Your, your PSA is fine. It's in reference range. Wrong. 3.9 in a 40 year old guy, that guy has got an issue. Now, it could be non-cancerous, but something's wrong with his prostate, and it could be, and we'll see very young men sometimes with prostate cancer. It may also be a marker for cancer to come down the road. 80-year-old guy, 3.9? Yeah, looking good, okay? In general, in general. However, it's not that easy. So we don't go just on the absolute value. We also need to look at what's called a PSA velocity, which is how fast has that PSA moved up over time? As men get older, every year, your PSA is going to come up just a little bit. That's normal, okay? But when it starts coming up more than, say, a half a point or 0.6 nanograms per milliliter per year, and it keeps going higher than that rate, that may be a marker for prostate cancer. And we have had many a man diagnosed with clinically significant prostate cancer with a PSA of 3. And the only reason we caught it is because a year ago, their, their PSA was 1. Correct. Which is awesome that we're testing it. They're getting a baseline at yeah. a much younger age than they would kind of inside a primary care setting or an insurance-based clinic. And yeah. just one more point on the PSA. There's certain medications that can lower your PSA. And a big one that we're seeing these days is finasteride, right. which is for hair loss because it's easy to get through these telehealth. Yes. And that can literally cut your PSA in half. So it's super important to be talking to your doctor 
about those medications if you're on them. Really good point because it's giving you a false sense of security when right. when you're on that medicine. I had a, a patient today that was saying, what can I take to lower my PSA? I said, well, my answer was, it's really not about lowering your PSA. It's about lowering your prostate cancer risk. And there are medicines, just as you mentioned, finasteride, that will lower your PSA, but it had nothing to do with lowering your cancer risk. Right. So that's a great point. Okay. Well, he's got to get back to seeing patients, so I appreciate your time today. Off to save the world, Amy. Thank you. (laughs) And we'll do more of these because I think they're helpful because people want to be able to analyze their own labs and know that they're getting good care. So we'll continue to do these so we can educate everyone. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.